keep recording episodes and then not publishing them because I feel like they're not <laughs> that exciting, not, not well researched. I don't know, I slack somehow. I didn't provide the particular content that I wanted. I did a small review of Dune, the new movie by um, the Quebecois director Denis Villeneuve, which in which I shit on the books some more. I know I have a couple of times before. I couldn't finish it. They're really terrible. Um, I just mean like, it's it's not my kind of science fiction because it really misses. Uh, or really doesn't engage anything other than the usual futuristic fodder of military societies and empire and anyway, you know, and superheroes, preordained superheroes, which is like so much of the fantasy genre. And it's really not that exciting the movie itself i think was very visually pretty it was good to look at even though and i was glad i had read the books because it made the story so much easier to not engage with i guess in a sense i could just watch the movie and i knew what was happening and who was what and sort of you know i forgot a few things but um, for the most part, the plot wasn't a real um, burden or thing I had to figure out. It's not that complicated anyway. But, you know, it was nice not to think about it in any way. Then that was basically my review uh, of Dune. Uh, I think I've kind of uh, paraded very similar thoughts as to what I had recorded previously. I tried watching the Batman. Somebody, a friend, a friend was kind enough to give me access to a streaming service which has these movies on it. And that's why I'm reviewing current stuff as opposed to stuff that came out eight years ago or, you know, 30 years ago, like they Live, which I watched recently as well. It's a fantastic sci-fi film, really low-budget John Carpenter, John Carpenter film uh, with Rowdy Roddy Piper, wrestling aficionados, will know who that is, uh, in the lead. Uh, it's really, anyway, it's really simple and ridiculous, and it's about uh, a drifter who moves to California looking for work and he believes in the American dream that, you know, thrift and hard work will lead to riches and success for anybody who um, employs themselves to such an endeavor and, you know, with diligence. And he finds himself in an encampment in a sort of tent village and living with all the people, all the poor people outside, you know, in LA, you know, the homeless, uh, the working homeless, basically, because they all have jobs to go to. And it's actually at a work site that he finds out about this encampment. And then he 
finds himself involved sort of with like a resistance and <laughs> do, who are developing, um, who have developed a set of sunglasses, uh, some cool looking sunglasses that let you see reality. Um, and reality turns out to be aliens, these skeletal-like aliens with bug eyes that look a bit, I, I'm sure anybody who's seen uh, the movie Mars Attack uh, that came out, I can't remember when that came out, it's a comedy satire, um, but Mars Attack I think took uh, inspiration from the aliens in They Live to create their own aliens. Who did Mars Attack? I, maybe I should rewatch that again. Um, which is, a, I, I remember it being particularly funny. Uh, and not a bad satire. Anyway, so I'm not reviewing things like they live, not commenting on those too much. There's a fantastic scene in that movie in which our hero, Rowdy Roddy Piper, has to convince his friend to put on the sunglasses, but his friend is really adamant. Um, they've had a falling out at that point, but it, and so his friend's like really adamant that he is not going to put on the goddamn glasses, sunglasses, because he, not because he doesn't want to see reality, but because he doesn't trust his friend uh, or what he's trying to show him. So they get into like <laughs> probably the one of the most extended fight scenes in cinematic history where it's just two dudes in an alley and it's just relentless and violent and it's just <laughs> and it's almost comical uh it's actually quite comical how it just doesn't stop and it, it just guy just refuses absolutely refuses to put on the sunglasses so anyway going back to the movie I wanted to talk about, the movie I could not finish watching because it is so bland and terrible, the Batman 2021 with the dude from Twilight. I can't remember his name. I can't remember what other movies he was in, but he is really bland. I mean, like, and I feel like most people who play Batman are generally rather bland. Uh, it comes with the role, right? You're just mostly hidden behind a mask. And there are some uh, films that give a little bit more time to the alter ego, uh, Bruce Wayne, and the actor is able to, whoever's portraying Batman at the time, is able to, you know, show some acting through there because mostly the batman is just a suit walking around beating up dudes uh, baddies sometimes they are female too it's true and um well batman is bland in this film we don't we 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 don't get very much of bruce wayne except for as the tortured batman hiding out in his basement who doesn't want to take care of the of the company, uh, of the family conglomerate, multi-billion dollar conglomerate that allows him to have all these vigilante toys. 
and the butler is like so concerned. Oh my God, the wealth, the, the wealth is disappearing. You know, he's going to be the second person, second billionaire to lose the status of billionaire after JK Rowling. Um, that's actually not how it is explained in the movie. But anyway, I digress. The movie is very... I've seen reviews on Twitter about how flat it is. And it's true in a sense that the, there is no... I mean, there are points in the film where the contrast is kind of high. I'm talking about the colors in the film. But for the most part, the colors are kind of muted. A lot of the action, a lot of the characters are in the shadows. And it's not a very visually engaging film, which is surprising for a Batman film. I mean, like, <laughs> you can go back to the Tim Burton films, which are very, very, very elaborate uh, visual landscapes and colors. Uh, there was a high contrast, high intensity, you know, really good costumes. Um, and then after that, you had kind of like the neon hellscape that was Batman forever. Um, anyway, like, and there was a couple of Batmans where neon played like a significant role in, in the color schemes. And then, uh, you had the Christopher Nolan films, which I think are really mediocre, even though you know, Batman, is it Batman Returns? Um, anyway, the second one of the, of the Nolan trilogy, uh, tends to be lauded as one of like, oh, as often as the best Batman movie released. But I think, eh, I don't know. I'm not so sold on it. I think it's kind of, uh, uh, I really don't like Christopher Nolan's work. I think he is overrated and his films, Though engaging at first, they often underdeliver upon reviewing in a way, I think, you know, because he relies so much on surprise gimmicks. Uh, Inception was really, uh, it should have been a 20 minute film. And after that, it was just like boring, boring as fuck because there was nothing else to do. You know, he ran the gimmick. Uh, we're fighting crime inside the dreams or whatever it was. And the gimmick like runs out. After 20 minutes, you've exhausted it and there's nothing more to it. I think, uh, what was the other one? Oh, what was the name of the one that ran backwards? The one that first, you first, uh, that first made his name, uh, Memento. Again, you rewatch it and you're like, wow, this is really kind of bland. Without the mystery of the reverse time thing, the movie doesn't, you know, once the mystery is removed, the movie doesn't, uh, it's not really, <laughs> it's not interesting at all. If you watch the movie in the right time sequence, you find that it's a rather bland film. Uh, I mean, like, genius of him to, to realize that he could turn it into something a lot better by just uh, fucking around with the time sequence, uh, by reversing the chronology of events. Um, but as it is, 
uh, Christopher Nolan is not that interesting a director. He's um, and the two Batman films uh, that you know, like the the first and the last part of his trilogy, show how poor uh, of a filmmaker he is. Um, with the middle one feeling a bit like an accident, perhaps. Uh, anyway, going back to the new Batman with Twilight Hearthrob, whatever his name is, um, he still comes out looking like a vampire uh, most of the time, which is fitting because he's playing Batman. I guess Batman is a vampire cousin uh, creature. Anyway. <laughs> it's not a good film. It's not worth watching. I watched Vice, V-I-C-E, Vice, um, the sort of uh, docu-dramatic reenactment of the life and times of Dick Cheney. And that was good. That's another movie with Christian Bale. Christian Bale, in this instance, playing Dick Cheney. Uh, and not Batman. So it's the, you know, another... But again, playing uh, somebody incredibly wealthy. And it's very captivating. It's very good. It gives you a very long history of Dick Cheney. Uh, I'm not sure. And anyway, it gives you kind of like a caricature. Uh, George W. Bush, a bumbling fool character who's just, you know, who just wants to, to look good for his dad. I guess um, the movie's good. I feel like it gives you a lot of kind of interesting biographical details about the vice president of the United States during the Bush years, during the Iraq war years, during the Halliburton profiting the fuck out of the invasion of, of Iraq years and shows you the ruthlessness of Dick Cheney with a little momentary touch of uh, kind of deep humanity uh, towards his daughter, Mary, who is a lesbian and uh, came out to the family quite uh, well before uh, he became vice president. And he actually had ambitions According to the film, he had like plenty of ambitions to become president himself, but decided that having a gay daughter made him a very, at the time, in the 90s, made him, uh, made him a very unlikely candidate. Uh, it seemed like it was an obstacle that he could, an obstacle at the time, you know, 30 years ago, this was an, deemed an unsurmountable obstacle towards the presidency. It wouldn't be now, but at the time, uh, it was. And he chose uh, his daughter. He chose his daughter over, over his presidential ambitions. But, you know, the counterpoint to that is that years later... Uh, he gives permission to his other daughter 
to come out against gay marriage. Uh, his other daughter being Liz Cheney, who is now, uh, is she a senator or a member of Congress? I can't remember. Um, but she is in the American government. And yeah, she came out against gay marriage, throwing her sister under the bus with the permission of her parents. I think one interesting aspect of the film that I had no idea about, uh, that I guess never gets emphasized in, in, or at least not for me in the, like the small bits of, I knew about Dick Cheney and all the fucked up shit, all the evil he was involved in, in, especially surrounding Iraq war, uh, what, what's the word? Uh, torture. What's the other word? What's the other word? Uh, renditions. Um, was oh, anyway, I can't remember the adjective that goes between, be, before renditions. Um, and mass surveillance of the American people and the world, really. Uh, the expansion of NSA powers really came under, uh, really was developed under the Bush presidency powers, which are still available to all future presidents. Um, it's a compelling film, it humanized Cheney while also not excusing, um, not excusing him, not making excuses for him, not, uh, giving you like a soft, uh, sympathetic view of him. I mean, like you still, get the full scope of uh, derangement that was the Bush administration, which he appears to have had an incredible amount of control over, maybe even greater than the then president himself, which, as I said, the movie presents as sort of like bumbling fool. That was definitely worth watching, uh, unlike the more recent film created by the same director whose name I can't remember right now. Anyway, not important. The latest film that he made was with David Sirota, who used to work for Bernie Sanders. He's a well-known journalist, author, uh, political commentator. And together they made the movie Don't Look Up, which I found incredibly bland and unappealing, really facile examination of the media landscape in relationship to climate change and the political landscape in relationship to climate change. It was really, really boring in how much material they had in their hands and how little they did with it. There were brief moments of like, of comedy that worked, but for the most part, I found it rather uninspired and rather facile in its analysis. Analysis, I wish he had developed or, you know, started for more interesting characters. But sadly, it did not. It was very limited in scope. And, and yet, <laughs> yet they patted themselves on the back so hard for making that dumbass movie that really, really only looked at a very superficial level. 
why the politics and the media landscape malfunction in relationship to climate change. Um, anyway, I guess that's that's a lot of movies I've talked about. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't think I'm going to turn the podcast into a movie review podcast. But for the moment, I guess maybe some of you heard, I think I mentioned it in my last episode that was published, that I, I got COVID. And it was during this time that I actually like, recorded a number of episodes and like didn't publish any of them. I feel like the energy just was wrong and my analysis of things was not very deep and kind of boring. I was trying to look at SARS-CoV-2 and where it's at uh, or, you know, some of the new things that have been learned through freedom of, freedom of information, uh, lawsuits launched by various media uh, various journalists, particularly Vanity Fair and The Intercept. Vanity Fair actually has done, has published some very thorough and in-depth uh, reporting concerning the obfuscation created by various branches of the American government and how they've tried to Keep people from digging into the origins of the virus because it would look bad uh, upon the government, which funded some of the research being done in Wuhan, and American scientists were collaborating with scientists in One movie that I've been meaning to watch for a long time and I finally went um, a month ago actually I went to the the, the bank and I got a copy of Weebo's War uh, 2011 I think documentary um, about the life and times of Weibo Ludwig and his family. Now, if you don't know who that is, I suggest you do like a quick, uh, you know, you, you get down on the internet and uh, look him up on the Wikipedia. He, um, he lived in Northern Alberta around, uh, Oh, I can't remember the name of the town now. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's around the Peace River region, region in northern Alberta, uh, just outside a town called Hythe. And he lived in a community. He created a community 
that him and his family called uh, Trickle Creek. And they moved there in the 80s, I believe. Like, I think it was like 1985. And... Um, with the goal of creating like a religious community, a Christian community, uh, isolated from the world for the most part, uh, and mostly self-sustaining. And it was his family and another family, both with like very large numbers of kids who eventually intermarried as the kids grew up. Um, every now and then they would seek, um, you know, more, you know, when at a certain point you got to look for, for a broader gene pool. But, uh, for the most part, they, they, you know, they, they self-sustained and isolated. And they moved to Northern Alberta from Ontario to escape the world, essentially. Uh, like many people, many, um, uh, many settlers who move up north, they moved to escape the world. And to establish their own community. However, they didn't count on the fact that, and this is what a lot of the movie deals with, a lot of the documentary, which was filmed by David York. And a lot of the documentary deals with his struggles, uh, with his family's struggles, and him being the leader of the community, of the commune. Um, their struggles against uh, big oil and the gas industry in northern Alberta. Now, when he moved there, there was only one sour gas well uh, when his family moved there, um, you know, close to their Trickle Creek. But in the following years, development just started ramping up. And, you know, with very little notice, there was no discussion with the community the government was just leasing this land to to Encana a large uh, gas and oil producer an energy company as they like to redub themselves and this sour gas wells uh, that were appearing around Trickle Creek the family was scared that, about the off-gassing that they do now, sour gas wells um, often, you know, you got to remove, um, I believe it's called hydrogen sulfide from the sour gas well in order to extract the gas, you know, to purify it, whatever, the refining process. You got to separate this toxic hydrogen sulfide from it. But it is more expensive to capture it than to simply burn it you know, off-gas it, or just release it into the air. Um, so what a lot of the, you know, flaring would be would be burning it, but sometimes companies just release it into the air and pretend they, they didn't. So this started happening around Trickle Creek. And the community, very interestingly, uh, you know, well, they started complaining to the community, the, the commune, the Ludwig and, and his family started complaining to the police, to the authorities about these sour gas wells, these new developments, and the off-casting that was happening, their fears around it. And they, they started filming, um, 
their, you know, what what the sour gas wells were doing to their lives. Um, they they would show that it was starting to contaminate their water. Uh, you you actually have videos of them like lighting the water on fire right straight out of the tap. Um, but anyway, maybe I'm jumping ahead. Anyway, the documentary like it shows you a little bit of the the footage. Um, because one of the first things that they notice is that their livestock, they kept goats mostly, uh, that their livestock was, um, was, they were giving birth, stillbirths, stillbirths started happening, uh, with relative frequency in the farm in Trigger Creek. And they were very concerned. They tried to get attention of the authorities uh, about hydrogen sulfide and the sour gas wells, these leaks that were happening, this off-gassing that was happening. Uh, all to no avail. The authorities didn't care. I mean, like, the, the oil companies run northern Alberta for the most part. And uh, the communities, the small communities that live up there uh, tend to suffer. So... We will Ludwig, it seems, it's alleged. I feel like a lot of it, he did go to prison eventually for certain bombings. But I don't know. I feel like the evidence was never so concrete. Uh, that's why he never went for like very long stints. I think the longest conviction he got was like 28 months in jail. Uh, of which he served 19. Um, but um, he started bombing. These oil gas wells, not the ones directly around Trickle Creek, but ones not too far off. And they started doing, anyway, somebody started bombing these um, oil wells. And they started bombing some in BC as well. And Weibo and his family, knowing that they, the authorities were not somebody to rely on, but somebody to fight against, started filming every single interaction they had with the police. And anyway, the documentary takes place. I'm, I'm maybe not explaining it the best, but anyway, Wilbur Ludwig was like, uh, was one of the first people uh, that I can recall earning the title of eco-terrorists. Uh, in me, in the media. Uh, he was very much vilified. But in many respects, I mean, like the, the documentary in particular, like that's a very sympathetic portrayal of him and his community, despite their, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting conflict of, of who they are and what they're fighting against, right? Because there is this, you know, they are very much this fundamentalist Christian family, you know, very much settlers going up north to seek out a new life. And then, you know, their opponent is big oil and all these land destroying, um, this land destroying industry um, that just surrounded them and surrounded their farm. Eventually, I'll go back. The documentary picks up in like 20, I think it started filming in 2008, 
goes up to 2010 when he was arrested again at some point uh, when more bombings were happening. There, there were like an in, under incredible amount of surveillance. A lot of the time uh, they had their homes raided by the RCMP. They would come in with like squat, uh, SWAT teams of like 200 soldiers in like full camo and you know like their faces painted and all that stuff like you know like shit you would see out of like an 80s uh commando movie um you know fighting in the jungles of central america anyway you have this massive rcmp response to um to these bombings and the massive searches that didn't seem to ever turn up anything this either means that uh, Weibo and his family were not involved in the bombings, although they kind of slyly hint that they were <laughs> throughout the film. Um, but but also, anyway, I feel like you get the sense rather that they were very careful about and, and smart about how they proceeded with things with what was labeled eco-terrorism, which they seem to have arrived at as a last resort, as like the only possible resort when the authorities are in bed with the land destroyers. <sighs> they really do like a number on like trying getting all the surrounding communities, all their neighbors against them as well. Uh, one of the things that that's really fascinating about uh, Weibo and his family is that they seem to have um, they, they were not afraid they were not afraid of big oil which was you know already tells you something about them um, but also they were not afraid to show the damage that was being brought upon them so not only were they filming all their interactions with the RCMP, they seem to have spent a lot of time also filming themselves, their community. So all the stillbirths that happened and like all, all, all the, the atrocities suffered by their animals and then eventually suffered by the women of the community uh, who also suffered miscarriages and had a stillbirth happen. Uh, those are all documented. You, and you can see the bodies of these babes and how you, you can't explain why they've been born in this way, except by looking at the oil and gas industry that's slowly but persistently encroaching upon their community. I really recommend the, the documentary. I feel like I've read a number of things about Ludo uh, Weibo Ludwig. Um, I followed this story. I mean, I was a kid in Alberta when this happened, right? So I feel like I didn't follow it that closely. And I knew, I mean, like, there are some incidents that happen that are quite shocking. Uh, one of them, you know, when, when they turn the community against them uh, and they started re- receiving threats, uh, there is one night where a group of kids, maybe drunk, 
they decide to, in the middle of the night, just drive up to the farm and do wheelies in their on their property. And by chance, some of the girls in the community are having their, their room redone at that point. So they happen to be sleeping on the front yard in a tent. And so you have like this giant pickup trucks come in to the wheelies, whether the kids were conscious that there was a tent with like uh, people sleeping in it or not, girls sleeping in it or not. We don't know. Um, but the adults get concerned for the girls and somebody shoots a gun. And, and that gun and, and that shot it ends up killing one of the teenagers in one of the trucks. I think there were two trucks. Um, so not, you know, the, the, the authorities already galvanized the community against Trickle Creek. And then this incident just makes everything so much worse. Like any little bit of sympathy they had uh, in their surroundings, it's totally gone. They're totally vilified. And it's curious, the Ludwig's handling of the th of the incident too, because clearly it's either him or one or one of his family members who fired the shot. I've read some reports that say that what appears to have happened is that the bullet ricocheted off, I think it's like the wheel well of one of the trucks and then struck the teenager. So it appears that whoever fired at the trucks was aiming for the wheels. Not, you know, it wasn't like, so it seems like it was an accident. Uh, it was aiming for the wheels to disable the truck. There was no intent to harm or kill anybody. But I mean, like that, uh, that's just, anyway, that's speculation in, in, you know, for my part, it's a bit, so from, 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 from what I've read. But the Ludwigs decides like not to talk. They decide not to talk, not to reveal who fired the gun. The police raid their homes again. Uh, they find a gun that matches the caliber, but they can't verify that it's the gun that fired that particular shot. Uh, that same night, Ludo, um, Weibo Ludwig called call the cops, called 911 himself uh, to report that some shots had been fired at the trucks. <sighs> anyway, it it's a tragic incident and it's like wrapped in mystery and Weibo and his family decided to keep that mystery, you know, not to feel any. He's very uh, open about the fact that he just decided to make his peace with it. Like, he's like, you know what? Uh, he doesn't say, he doesn't say it in, in this particular way, but there, there is, there is a sense that he makes peace with the, with what happened. That's like, that's probably like the incident in the, in, in the, in the film that gets a lot of attention. Um, because it really changed people's opinion. I mean, <sighs> Not, I mean, like most neighbors were not sympathetic with the bombings going around. Most people have 
uh, most people up north um, profit off the oil industry. You know, they work for the oil industry uh, or a good no- enough of a number of them that for them, anybody that messes with the oil industry is messing with them, with their livelihood, which they don't like, understandably. Um, anyway, I feel like another really interesting part of the documentary is like really the interactions between the director and Weibo and his family, because the director is an atheist and the family is like really skeptical of him for being an atheist. I think he might have been better off saying he was Jewish or Muslim or something else. But the fact that he was an atheist, you know, coming to this very religious, very Christian community, like really rubbed them off, rubbed them the wrong way. And it took them a while to to accept him. But eventually they do host him and they realize that he is a sympathetic um, filmmaker. I, is, a sympath- is sympathetic with their cause. You know, he gets this... And, and obviously a lot of the footage that's presented in the film comes from their um, cameras. So they gave him, you know, they, they gave him permission to use all that. It's a fascinating story. I feel like there's... I don't know. I don't know if there's anybody like that in northern Alberta or who would get that sort of attention nowadays. Um, it seems like the opposition to like uh, oil and gas is not so fervent anymore. Maybe a lot of those communities have moved out. Maybe they've just... Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. But at the time... You know, for like the 20 years, 20 plus years that uh, Weibo Ludwig was fighting the oil and gas industry, that seemed like a big story. Uh, And nowadays, I feel like it's kind of forgotten in some ways. The film doesn't cover this, but like a year after the film was, or the same year that the film was released, uh, Weibo passed away from cancer, esophageal cancer. Um, I don't know. Some people... I've read some s- speculation that maybe he was poisoned, but that's... Anyway, that's... That's not... That's speculation. That's, like, really, really speculation. And... One thing that the... Yeah, the RCMP just haunted him. Just, like... the You can see in the documentary, just, like... The kids just like laughing, or you know, not 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 bothered by by the police raids anymore. And and there's one very telling incident where the girls are talking about their interactions with the police, and the police is like, "Wow, you're so calm." And the kids are like, well, the girls are just like, "Well, there's the fifth, fifth raid." We've lived through. <laughs> We're kind of used to it by now. Um, yeah, it's just the level of police brutality and police uh, use of force. Uh, it just gives you like the whole. It's just a, a nice reminder of like the long history of this by the RCMP. It's not something new or surprising when it happens in. To other communities in other parts of Canada, 
yeah, like the protests that were happening in BC last year, or, you know, whether that be on Vancouver Island or against the Wet'suwet'en community, uh, the actions of the RCMP have been uh, shit for, for as long as this country has been around. Anyway, highly recommend it. Uh, it's gruesome because, <laughs> because you, I mean, it's very graphic. Um, and even though you don't have to agree with Weibo, Ludwig, with, with his religious views or with his methods, but, and it's clearly that, at least on the religious side of things, the, the director, the filmmakers are not on board. But uh, but they do find his struggle sympathetic, uh, and it's uh, anyway, it's a film worth watching, made by the NFB, uh, published by the NFB, or whatever funded. Uh, and that's it. And that's my movie review. Uh, <laughs> All right, talk to you later.